0: all of a sudden, boom, I woke up when my face got smashed against the side of the cabin um, during a capsize. All I felt was the, the familiar kind of trickle, the warm trickle of blood down my face, and then that started streaming down, and as this is going on, I, the boat has been turned over 360 degrees, so it's you're like you're in a, a washing machine, so it was pretty um, crazy, um, you know, 20 seconds or so.
1: Welcome and thank you for joining us for the seventh episode of the Hard as Nails podcast, which is brought to you by Outsider.ie Islands Adventure Magazine. My name's Kevin, and we are back in the ocean for this episode of the series. Our guest is a former professional rugby player, having played for the likes of Leinster and Connacht during his career. However, recently he took on and completed the Epic Atlantic Challenge rowing race as a solo effort from the Canary Islands to Antigua, which is an An incredible distance of 4,800 kilometers, and he completed it in 63 days. From capsizing a number of times, to riding out the storms, to blisters and lacerations, to encounters with whales, and the psychological battle, he experienced it all and more on this remarkable test of the human spirit. We are honored to have Damien Brown on the Hard as Nails podcast. Damien, thank you for joining us. We're looking forward to hearing all about your phenomenal experiences from the Atlantic Challenge.
0: Thanks for having me, Kevin. I appreciate it and uh, happy to share with you.
1: Brilliant. Well, Damien, the question you probably ask the most often is why? Why do you take on these extreme challenges and have this uh, adventure lifestyle?
0: Um, Do you know, it's a question I struggle to answer sometimes because there's so many answers to it. Mm -hmm. I could give you a different answer uh, tomorrow than I could today or (laughs) yesterday. Mm. Um,
1: (laughs) So so what's the answer then today, Damien? uh,
0: Okay. (laughs) Well, the, the the simplest way I can put it is they make me happy. They bring a lot of contentment to my life. Mm-hmm. You know, if you imagine um, your life as a, a pie chart uh, and 95% of it is made up of just doing the mundane day-to-day stuff and 5% is made up of uh, adventures, mm-hmm. that 5% brings so much more to the other 95% bring so much calmness and perspective and um, clarity uh, that um, I keep been driven back into that five percent to bring kind of more um, more of those. Uh, um, what would you say? More of those things to the to the ninety five
1: percent. Wow, that's it's quite an interesting way to to look at it. Now, going from being a professional rugby player, playing on weekends uh, and the lifestyle that goes along with that to suddenly having a life after sport, how did you deal with that change and what was the most difficult part of it?
0: It leaves a big hole in your life, mm-hmm. um, especially the physical side of it. You know, that was the side of rugby I... Absolutely adored um, the physical confrontation and the challenge under extreme men- mental and physical duress. Mm. Um, and when that's gone, uh, it's it's irreplaceable. I I, I did struggle um, to find things to to fill that hole, and I still do. You know, um, I I don't think it'll ever be fully um, filled in, but. I had plans uh in my rugby career, you know. I had plans what sorry, while during my rugby career what I wanted to do afterwards and mm. a lot of them involved uh travel, uh challenges, adventure. So I wasn't I wasn't worried, I was excited. I felt that I had kind of exhausted myself or I had been so committed in the rugby environment that um, you know, I, I couldn't have got much more out of it and mm. I, I I was very content when I came to the end, and and very excited to mm. to go into um, a part of my life that I'd been thinking about for a long time. You know, these challenges like the Mountain Desable, run mm. across the Atlantic, and and future ones to come. So, mm. so I didn't I didn't look at it, look on it as a negative. The way it's kind of marketed, um, as for me it was it was a. Uh, it was just a, a turning of a page, you know, and um, and kind of committing myself to something I was really passionate mm. and excited about doing.
1: Yeah. You mentioned there the Marathon de Sable, which uh, you did not too long after hanging up uh, your rugby boots. For our listeners that aren't quite uh, familiar with this uh, grueling marathon, it's actually six marathons uh, that take place over six days. And all the while, you're busy carrying everything you need to survive the experience. What stood out the most for you from that challenge?
0: The accelerated bonding is, without a doubt, the the biggest thing that um, was recognisable to me mm-hmm. and and memorable. Looking back, you know, you're you're put into um, this obviously very extreme environment, and uh, the way the organisation runs the the show there is that everyone is put into these Berber tents, these local nomadic tents, mm-hmm. and it sleeps about eight people a, a maximum. Um, and uh you put in with fellow uh countrymen so we had like eight irishmen in our tent from the start and mm. you know it is it, it, um it's such an extreme environment like i said that uh, everyone's going through this suffering and this hell that um you have this crazy um accelerated bonding where you just uh, make these friendships that mm. uh that last a lifetime, you know, uh, and still are still very strong, even though it's two years post-race now, mm. I still keep in contact with nearly all the lads. And mm. yeah, it's um, it's it's a great, uh, a great thing to come out of something like that.
1: Yeah, incredible. Well, from the rolling sand dunes and uh, sandstorms in 50 degree heat, you then went on to tackle that massive waves in the harshest of conditions in the Atlantic Ocean. I read, Damien, that, more people have actually gone to space and climbed Mount Everest than having crossed the Atlantic. At the end of 2017, when this insane challenge got underway, did you set a goal of finishing it within a certain time or was it more just about completing it?
0: Um, I I didn't um, publicly say that I wanted to do it in such a time because Mm There were, there were so many unknowns for me you know uh, and uh, i had no maritime experience um so i didn't want to be anyway any way um, arrogant i wanted to be very respectful of mm. um the ocean and uh, my lack of knowledge so um i had obviously you just i think humanly you have figures in your head that you'd like to um you'd like to aim for but i, I wasn't um i wasn't spur- spurting that out to anyone it was just it was all internal mm. um you know, I just like I said, I just thought that uh I would be stupid really to be putting uh figures on things when yeah. there was so many unknowns for me, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to experience and what was coming at me so so I kept that stuff to myself um and uh and um and just kind of put a very broad number on it you know a solo is expected to finish between fifty to ninety days, so that's what I was saying to people, you know yeah. um and uh, and I did, somewhere in the middle of that, I finished.
1: <laughs> yeah, incredible. Well, Damien, as you mentioned, you did not have any rowing experience going into this. Uh, how did you manage to prepare then physically for this extreme undertaking of crossing the Atlantic solo, considering that the start was also delayed by two days?
0: When I committed to the race, it was 588 days um, pre-start date. Wow. So I I laid out a program for myself. You know, from my from my background as a rugby player and 16 years in that. Uh, even when I was playing rugby, I took a lot of responsibility for my own um, strength and conditioning work and my own. Um, my own body composition, so I was very, I'm very interested in that. You know, I'm, I'm passionate about that, and yeah. so I, I felt I had the tools to to um, put together a program for myself. So I laid it out, um, like I said, five eight, hundred eighty-eight days beforehand, <laughs> and uh, it, w- it was just a case of been fit for purpose um, at the end. And I almost reverse engineered it, you know. So. I wanted to, I I knew where I wanted to be at the very end, so uh, sitting on the boat on day, on the start line on day one, I knew Mm. exactly what sort of physical um, state and preparedness I wanted to be in, I just worked back from that, so Mm. I had to be heavy, um, because I was going to lose a lot of of weight, and it was going to help with my, and I had to be strong. So the you know the the extra bit of weight would help with my strength as well, mm-hmm. uh, and then I did a lot of um, conditioning work on the ergometer and on the aerosol assault bike and on the watt bike over that period, mm-hmm. uh, high intensity stuff, um, you know high intensity interval training, but with a kind of maybe three to one uh, work rest ratio. So mm-hmm. you have to really delve into your mental processes when you do that because yeah. um, well you're backing up maximal efforts time after time, which is mentally very draining. Mm-hmm. And very difficult. And then, uh, my long kind of volume work got done on the water when I bought the boat. So about six months before the start, I did a lot of, um, well, I built up. So I, I did a kind of, uh, built up from three or four hour rows to, uh, 25 hour rows, the longest I did on the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I got my kind of, um, uh my my volume through that you know um so uh i was i was very happy and i felt very prepared um standing or sitting on the boat on the start line on day 1 um but the one i did make one mistake in my preparations and i, I tapered my um i tapered too uh, early Um, before the race so that Mm. means I just stopped training too long before the start so it ended up in about 3 weeks because of that delay or a little bit over 3 weeks because of that 2 day delay Mm. Uh, and that was too long and my body had detrained a little bit and it was just a a mistake and a learning um, process on my part Mm. Uh, I just thought because the the period of the build up was so long and so intense and so hard that I needed an extra period of taper but uh, in hindsight you know 5 to 8 days would have done me would have done me fine but uh, uh yeah what happened then on day one is my body went into all sorts of shock because it hadn't really done any training uh, in 23 days uh, so um and with the seasickness and then psychologically i had problems on day one i got blown back to the islands and um three times i saw the same waypoint, the same um yeah. mileage on the gps yeah from going backwards, going forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards. <laughs> so, so that was very difficult when I was going through a lot of physical um, shock, really, yeah. um, at the same time. Hmm.
1: And you touched on it there, Damien, about uh, the mental challenge and how mentally prepared you had to be going into this uh, dangerous expedition. It's a... Uh, Probably even more important to be mentally prepared than, than physically prepared. What did you do to get into the right frame of mind before taking on the Atlantic?
0: I did a lot of affirmations um, from about a year out. So okay, like, wow. you know, three, four mornings um, a week, I'd sit down just after waking up and I'd just hmm. say very positive um statements very strong powerful statements to myself i'll give you an example like i'd say mm-hmm. nothing will stop me rowing across the atlantic and i'd repeat that to myself five six seven maybe ten times and then i'd move on to another one and, and you're just playing with your um, neurochemistry there you know you're just changing it into a very um, strong positive place and and with that what what happens with that is like you don't see any well i don't see any immediate effect but i see a medium term effect which means like when, you know, in six months' time or in a year's time, when like I do get into a situation where I become very negative, Mm. I'm able to process that really quickly and get back into a positive mindset because Mm. I've said that to myself for so long and I, I, you know, I absolutely believed it, you know. I believed nothing was gonna stop me running across the Atlantic and it turned out nothing did stop me even though I tried (laughs) a lot. Um, So those, I I found those, I find those very, very useful and very powerful, you know. And, uh, you know, when I was on the ocean, there was times where um, it became very difficult mentally. And uh, I had had different processes in place, you know, but the general general gist of them all was controlling the controllables. Mm. So I would control I would I would say to myself you know what is out of control here and how can i control it so it might have been my for example it might have been my effort i could control that it might be my breathing i can control that it might be my self-talk i can control that it -hmm. might be my technique or my position on the oars or it might be just the state of the boat you know the clutter on the boat and getting everything Mm -hmm. um you know diligently um in place and tied Mm -hmm. down so all those things brought me back to obviously some uh, a state that was um i was in control and then you know subsequently my mind and my body would come back into control and then Mm -hmm. you know you're in a you're in a much stronger place and positive place when you're in control
1: yeah absolutely amazing the power that affirmations uh, can have well, the Atlantic Challenge, Damien, got underway on December fourteenth last year. I'm interested to know, though, for the grueling nine weeks that followed, what routine, if any, did you implement when it came to the amount of time you rode each day, when you ate, when you slept? Was it the same every day, more or less?
0: So, uh, probably another mistake I made in my um, in my preparation was not putting down a fixed routine from day one i kind of went into it going oh you'll find the routine you know Mm. and and that did happen but that happened only after about three weeks Hmm. and i think i would have been um better served if i'd started with a fixed routine and this just having that uh apart from the routine itself is just having that discipline to Mm. stick the timings um, and that helps in a whole lot of other areas so I didn't have that for three weeks and the first three weeks because of the conditions we faced which were were, were crazy crazy conditions you know um, four boats didn't make it past day nine and um, you know the, the race had like numerous numerous capsizes in that time so um, it was yeah the craziest conditions the race had seen in a long long time so having a routine in that time would have probably helped me a bit but I eventually found the routine of something along the lines of a kind of uh, uh, five or six a.m. start. Um, well, remember now I'm on Spanish time, even though I went through four mm. different time zones. It was mm-hmm. always I was stuck to Spanish time, so um, so it was like six a.m. start and then uh, on the oars for half six, um, and would just have a, a shake. A shake with like protein. Mm. Um, quick carbohydrates, quick absorption carbohydrates, dextrose, multidextrin and some creatine Mm. and a green green, um, supplement, you know, like spinach or, you know, asparagus, broccoli, whatever um, supplement. And then um, I would row then until um, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. So really, that was a really hard stint, but that's when I was freshest. That's when all the... um, the deterioration, had, it, had it, um, a period during the night to recover, so mm. had a lot of sores, pressure sores, salt sores, my hands, my mm. fingers, my knuckles were all in bits, so so doing that five or six hour period first thing in the morning was, mm. I felt the best period to do it, you know, because I was, fre- like I said, I was freshest, mm. and then um, at one o'clock I'd eat lunch and breakfast together sometimes, if I hadn't had breakfast at six, mm-hmm. and then It got really hot during the day, so I'd row then from 2 to 4. I'd take an hour off at 4. I might turn on the satellite phone and just maybe answer a few text messages. Mm. And then um, from 5 to 7, I would row, and then I'd have a a quick bite to eat at 7, like a a dinner, you know, Mm -hmm. a a dehydrated meal. And then from 7 to nine i would row again and then what happened then was i had a decision to make at night time because when the uh... when the um, sun sunset you know you were either going to get moonlight or you weren't and because i had issues with my steering um, i was steering with the oars for about over two and a half two thousand nautical miles mm. um, so steering with the oars with no moonlight was an absolute mm. nightmare mm. i mean just can't i can't even describe how Difficult it is um, mentally more than anything because Mm. you 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 have to see where you're putting the oars into the water. Mm -hmm. There's a placement element involved. Mm. So when you're placing the oars into the water with no moonlight and only about a meter and a half of um, visual visual length. Mm. Um, you're guessing, you know, because mm. you can't see. And with that, then you're getting the ore down into the shin or into the knee. Or worst case scenarios, you'd get the butt of the ore into your ribs, you know, because yeah, you're just getting it wrong 19 times out of 20. So mm. yeah, it becomes a uh, it becomes almost futile even to stay out there, you know. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, sometimes um, sometimes I'd stay out for a half an hour and then I'd just be so beaten up from it, I'd go in and That's sleep sure. for a while and, and I'd stick my head out again around 2 in the morning to see if there was moonlight because sometimes <laughs> the moon is just does what it wants. Like, the moon is... I, I, I never realised or knew that the moon was such a kind of schizophrenic <laughs> it's just like some days it's there some days yeah. it's there in like 5 in the evening when it's bright some days it uh, rises out of the horizon like the sun and some days it just can't be arsed so it, it doesn't even turn up So um, and some days then you kind of wake up in the middle of the night and it'd be out when it wasn't out earlier so I, I just couldn't understand it I still don't to, to be honest with you but uh, yeah so it all became um, it all became a little bit fixed right. on what the moon was doing the night time Rowing.
1: Fascinating, and going back to nutrition, Damien, you you mentioned there some of the meals you took along with you. Was there any point though that you got sick of certain type of meals, and and also were there any treats that you you packed yourself, like chocolate perhaps that you would look forward to having?
0: I did get sick of certain meals pretty quickly. There was one mm-hmm. in particular, a pad thai that I brought, and okay. I thought beforehand that, oh, that'll be beautiful, and I'll eat loads of that, so I brought loads of it, like about 15 of them, and then oh. I'd say I probably had about five of them in the first six days, and then didn't touch them after that for the rest, you know. Mm. Um, the one thing I did do well with the meals was I brought a large variety from a load of different companies, and mm. every day, because um, I packed them kind of just randomly every day was uh, something different than something I mm. uh, hadn't, maybe hadn't tasted in five, six, seven days, or one or two meals like that, you know, so it kept, um, it was really important for morale, so it kept morale kind of high mm. when you were um, picking out a meal that you, well, you didn't know, and then you were kind of, oh, I like that one, you know, so okay. it helped a lot. Um, I did pack these little uh, bags of um, chocolates that I put together myself, mm-hmm. so my idea was like every seven days, I'll put in this little Bag of celebrations, heroes, you know, little treats, Mm. Um, and then I'll have them, you know, for whatever. I'll have a bag anyway to look forward to at the end of every week. But, uh, that was, uh, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men because I think I had them all eaten after about five <laughs> weeks. I couldn't. They were like little drops of heaven. Mm. I mean, I even when I'd pull one out, say, on day seven, I, I'd be like, okay, now try and spread these throughout the day. Like, mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'd have three quarters of the pack eaten by breakfast. Like, they were just uh, incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow, it's incredible. Now, for those that have seen the pictures and the videos that were posted during the challenge, it documents, well, the, the physical injuries you endured from the blisters on your hands as you mentioned also you got leg cramps and at the beginning you suffered from seasickness how did you overcome all these physical battles and was there ever a point you thought you know my body can no longer handle it and that calling it quits would be a possibility
0: day 43 was the day where i had i had a really 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 low day really hard day because um I had had issues with my uh, arse, my um, backside with the pressure sores and the salt sores from about the kind of 20-ish, you know. That's when I first noticed them, uh, and that's when um, I I started to ignore them, which was probably a bad idea, you know, mm. uh, in hindsight, because it just, obviously, it just... Um, and accelerated as the days went by and the mm. the um, state of them just became worse and worse and worse and then on day 43 I got to a stage where I felt like I'd exhausted every kind of possibility in a solution and I thought at that time that my only way to get to continue getting across the Atlantic was to kind of row for about 10 minutes maximum on 20 minutes off, you know, because I just couldn't sit down for any longer than 10 minutes. It was, uh, it was agony. I mean, mm-hmm. just, just absolute agony. And then, of course, you think you have the psychological battle of that as well. So I'm only on... You I've still got over a thousand miles to go at that stage and mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like, how bad are these going to be in 10 days' time, in 20 days' time, mm-hmm. you know, if they're, if they're so bad now I can't sit down for um, 10 minutes, like, mm-hmm. so you have a, all this going on and then you have so much time to think about it, like, you don't think about anything else, man, you know, when you're in pain, mm-hmm. all you think about is the pain mm-hmm. you're in, like, and I'm thinking, man, like, I have, to, I have this for another three weeks, three and a half weeks, like, I mean, every minute of every day, so... So that psychologically is very very difficult, yeah. as you can imagine. Um, what happened? The one um, the one solution I hadn't tried. Well, I had tried it, but I tried it badly. Yeah. Was I had a spare seat, and it was made up of yoga matting. And okay. the idea behind that was that I would cut holes. In the areas I had sores, to mm-hmm. give them a little bit of space and to take pressure off them, if you get me. To be, ho- I yeah. cut a hole in the yeah. mat and it would just take that pressure off them. Now, I had I had changed that in at one stage from my normal seat, but um, I designed it really badly, and I hadn't used it in training, so mm-hmm. it didn't really work. But what what it did work at was when I pulled it apart and I used the larger bottom. Uh, yoga mats so maybe three or four of them stacked up mm-hmm. I was able to sit on that much more comfortably and easily and roll and then I was able to cut holes in those like four deep yoga mats and that um, along with a good scrub every night and every mm-hmm. morning of the sores, which is in itself pretty painful, um, but it, it, it helped a lot um, especially at night for the next day, mm-hmm. you know, and then a few times I got into the water and gave them a good scrub as well, and gave myself a good scrub, just clean myself up, mm-hmm. I did that on day 43 and uh, and then I started using, I called it a perch, like those four yoga mats, Say mm-hmm. they were a perch on top of my normal seat, mm-hmm. uh, and that just helped me for about two weeks or so and I was, it gradually those holes gradually became bigger as the sores became bigger mm-hmm. so it was nearly down to nothing at the end yeah. but um it, it was just enough to make be able to row for two hours in those two hour stints that mm-hmm. I was doing an hour and a half two hours yeah. um and it was just enough to kind of um um, put um keep at bay all that psychological issues and the physical pain, and yeah you know, it did come back the swords did come back towards the end, but it 's a lot easier when you 've got three days to go to mm-hmm. put up with, and suffer through that pain than it is when you 've got three weeks if you get me so mm-hmm. so um yeah that that helped um uh, massively and uh yeah it got me uh it got me. Very close to the end. Yeah.
1: Well, from the painful moments, also came some of the scarier moments while you were out there on the Atlantic when you encountered those massive waves and thunderstorms, uh, waves reaching seven to eight stories tall. 14 days into the challenge, you got capsized while you were sleeping in your cabin and you got a nasty gash on your eye. Tell us about that experience and what was running through your mind at that moment.
0: You know, I said um, I had no maritime experience. Mm. So um there's a one positive to come from that and it's kinda of ignorance is bliss. Um I didn't realise uh you know, I, I was obviously I could see visually um, that these waves were huge, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize the you know enormity and the savagery of them. And even for somebody who's very experienced on on oceans and that, it would have been uh, very challenging. So I was kind of rowing along, going, "Man, this is crazy! Look at the size of these waves!" Mm-hmm. But like, not with the realization of the the kind of reality of them, you know, mm-hmm. and the danger of them, but. So on day 14, I was fast asleep, like, uh, I was around 7 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it had been pretty um tumultuous and volatile conditions for a few days and mm. the boat had kind of been um yeah tracking not too bad but you know when i stop rowing because i'm a solo rower the boat goes kind of side they call it beam on it goes side onto the waves mm. so i was asleep on that day and um obviously the conditions were huge and and all of a sudden boom I woke up when my face got smashed against the side of the cabin um, during a capsize. So what what, what would have happened is the boat would have gone sideways and then a big, huge wave would have broken, Mm. you know, so when the when the wind gets above 25 knots or so, the waves start breaking at the top instead of just rolling mm. over, and the boat will roll over them. So now they start to break, you know. Mm. So I was just in the wrong place um, at the wrong time on a wave, and it just broke, and it put me over, obviously. And, you know, I didn't know anything about it until I got smashed uh, into the side of the cabin, and it was a, it was a hell of a um, collision, mm. a hell of an impact. Um, cause I, you know, like you said at the start, I've played rugby my whole life, mm-hmm. like since I was 11 and I played 16 years professionally and mm. I never had a concussion in my life. So I've got a pretty, um, a pretty solid, uh, noggin on me, you know? So, uh, mm. uh I think that, that impact would have, uh, you know, knocked most people out cause it was, it was a hell of a bang. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it was absolutely disorientation, pandemonium. You're trying to process, uh, what happened in like nanoseconds you know Mm -hmm. like so you know you're woken up with this you know crazy um impact and pain and then all i felt was the the familiar kind of trickle the warm trickle of blood down Mm -hmm. my face and then that started streaming down and as this is going on i the boat has been turned over 360 degrees, so it's you're like you're in a, a washing machine, you know. And then there's a little bit of water started coming in because we've got a little hole underneath the boat for the water maker. And then I've all netting um, down the sides of where I sleep with stuff that I use every day, you know, water bottles and books and um, you know um, sat phones, and, that, and that's all on top of me. The bedding's on top of me, you know. Just trying to figure out what happened, so it was pretty um, crazy um, you know twenty seconds or so. Yeah. The ball kind of came round then in, 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 in a space of uh, seven seven to ten seconds and then um yeah, I just tried to figure out what to do next, so obviously I needed to stop the bleeding, and thankfully I had three or four cuts on the left side of my face, but thankfully none of them were too deep, you know, they're pretty superficial, so a uh, nice bit of pressure with uh, um, basically my bedding um, was able to, able to stop them pretty quickly, and then it was just about remedying the cabin and getting any water out that was in there, and then I went out onto the deck, and I, I had the whole deck, I mean, every you know cubic inch of it was covered in um in water you know so i just started um and some of the, the life raft had nearly come out um and the, the ground chain from the sorry the chain from the ground anchor was you know halfway hanging into the ocean so mm. it was just just getting everything back in place and trying to just trying to get yeah. my bearings and trying to figure out you know, what happened and was everything still there that i needed to be there and thankfully it was wow.
1: and these encounters with these uh, massive waves i'm sure they can really humble a person would you say that over time you almost formed i don't know a bond with the sea like it's an entity that uh, you created this relationship with
0: definitely definitely Hmm. without a doubt and Hmm. it's kind of hard to explain like you know you just you go through such hardship out there and you know you have so much respect for her but you almost start to love her some days like she's such a She's a moody beast. Um, mm. See, so yeah, I feel like you felt like that she had moods, and today, oh, she's in, you know, most of the time she was in bad mood, but, like, sometimes she was in a good mood, and those <laughs> days were just incredible. I mean, you'd mm. be, you could just, you know, there were obviously much calmer days, like, so you could just stand up on the boat and just be in awe of her and yeah. the, her fastness and her power and her, you know, um... Yeah, and and just be so. I like there's days where I I, I took a video diary every day, and I I, I look back on some of them there recently. And like there's days there where I was just going, man, this is crazy, and I, I don't want this to end, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, which most people would think is is madness because uh, mm-hmm. you think that you want nothing more to get to the end. But I was like, you know, just try and. Drink it all in and try and feel it as much as you can and and experience it and bank the memories because they're very very special and you're very privileged to be out there um, on your own in a, a part of the world that very 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 few people ever get to see you know mm. so and 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 experience those those moments where she is calm and she's pleasant and she's um, almost caring. You feel like she's almost kind of, you know, caring for you a little bit. So, yeah, like I said, I I don't know if I've I've done it any justice there in my explanation. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, very, very special uh, moments out there.
1: Yeah, and you describe it so beautifully. Now, what makes this accomplishment... That much more unbelievable, Damien, is that you did it all on your own. Did you, however, still have any contact with loved ones on satellite phone, email? Did you rely on that quite often to prevent that sense of loneliness and isolation from setting in?
0: I I did have contact through um, sat phone. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I talked to my parents quite regularly. Uh, I might have even talked to them more On the crossing than i've talked to them if i lived in the same house as them (laughs) (laughs) but it it was good for both of us you know it was good for obviously them to reassure them that everything was going okay and that i was in a good state physically mentally Uh, and it was really good for me like i i used to put on the sat phone between um seven and eight i think it was every night uh, uh and uh and you know I'd look forward to that period to making phone calls or just answering a few text messages. It was like uh you know at least you had some sort of connection uh on the because you were you know you were all alone, and you know for the other you know twenty three hours you were um Really much suffering, Um, so it was it was a nice it was a really nice thing to look forward to. And then uh, I also had a guy who was doing my weather, uh, who was routing for me. So he would have been in contact every day through email mostly. We talked a few couple of times on the phone, you know, but mostly through email. um, You know, so he'd be telling me, uh, you know, what the weather, the five days weather forecast, what was coming at me, and Mm. uh, he, he gave me my waypoints as I crossed. So. So, obviously, that's a very important part of it as well, you know, because so you, you want to get across as, as quickly and as efficiently and as safely as possible. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, those, those moments are those that just having, the, just having the connection, especially as you're on your own, you mm-hmm. know, it probably just staves off the, the loneliness a little bit.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine. Now, Damien, there was this rather humorous moment during the challenge uh, when you encountered a luxurious yacht Along the way, with a, a few beautiful women on it, and they were just living it up in the Atlantic Ocean. They came over to see what you were up to. Was it a bit of a bizarre moment for you?
0: It, well, it was. It was Christmas Eve, firstly, <laughs> okay. and I hadn't seen um, another human since um, for eleven days. It was mm. day eleven for me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I saw this boat called Anne on my uh, AIS, <laughs> which is your radar, basically. And uh, they were heading, you know, it tells you the the bearing uh, or the heading of the boat. Mm. And I was like, geez, they're heading straight for me. But they're like 11 nautical miles away or whatever. Yeah. So it's fine. Um, I you know about the time. There's no collision anyway. And then they were like still coming at me and still coming. I was like, what's going on? And then I did penny drop. to like, oh, they're actually coming to see you. Mm. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I could see this beautiful, beautiful yacht, like, uh, I suppose it's probably millions of dollars worth of yacht mm. um, that was crossing to Antigua for the for the season, you know, from, from Europe, so doing what I was doing, only much, much quicker and in much mm-hmm. more uh, style. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I came by and then there was, I could see, like, beautiful uh you could see it was all kind of glass on the deck and you Mm -hmm. could see everyone inside and outside and they seemed to be having a great time (laughs) you know there was a load of them right at the front of the boat Mm -hmm. uh with champagne glasses and there were beers or whatever and Mm -hmm. they were uh yeah and they circled me about three times and i could hear them screaming my name and the name of my uh team if you want we had to have a team name so they they had obviously internet connection on board and Mm -hmm. um and they, I could hear them over their motors uh, or their engines uh, saying, "We'll see in Antigua." Mm-hmm. So I was like, "Oh, they're going to Antigua. That's cool." So when I got there, I actually uh, went to the well. there was two marinas, but they were very close to each other. So I went by one of them and just seen if the boat was there. And sure mm-hmm. enough, it was. So yeah. I went by and said hello and just thanked them for for coming by and yeah. and chatted with them for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, bizarre and very um, uh, bizarre um, experience. Yeah. But uh, it was great at the time, you know, because you know, I hadn't seen anyone at that stage. And mm. uh, it just breaks up so much of, uh, you know, the monotony of just rowing for yeah. hours and hours and hours. That uh, Yeah, I was kind of, uh, I would have swapped places very happily at that time with one of them. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, it wasn't uh, to be.
1: <laughs> well, from those lighthearted moments, obviously came the extreme lows. And you've mentioned quite a few of them already. What is it though that motivated you, Damien? That that drove you on? Is it all about going into a survival mode and just staying alive, which is enough motivation in itself?
0: Well, you don't have a choice. Hmm. You know, if you want to get to the other end, you got to row. Um, so, <laughs> no, there is a huge element of like you're just you're just surviving every day. You're hmm. just you're in this crazy state, you know, of heightened awareness of survival, and uh, it, it it does keep you going. Like you don't. You don't think about the outcome when you're in that sort of state. You're just thinking about surviving. And that that's really, that's a real positive thing to come from that state, you know, because it's when you start to become outcome-orientated when it becomes psychologically different. Mm-hmm. But when you're just hanging on by your fingernails and, and just trying to, uh, you know, be as um, vigilant in your movements around the boat so you don't get thrown over and, you know, uh, and just you know just living in the moment through a survival state yeah. Uh, yeah that's that's really um that's a really powerful place to be and a really um strong place when you're in when you're in those uh in the, an expedition like that but yeah. you don't have a lot of of course you don't have a lot of choice you're not choosing to put yourself into that state you just are um and uh yeah and and of uh, course you know having having yeah. kind of no choice um is a, is a big enough drive in itself like yeah. that you just you know you wanna get there, if you wanna get there as fast as possible, mm. um, you know, you gotta roll and you gotta put in the effort to get there. So um, you know, that that was what kinda of, mm. you know, kept me going.
1: And what was the toughest part to overcome? The beginning, the middle or the end of the challenge, as each one they have their own emotions attached to it and also level of physical deterioration.
0: Day one. Nightmare. Just because, like I touched on earlier, everything that could go wrong went wrong. You know, no. like when been in that detrain state, I, I, I shocked my body because I, you know, you have all the emotion and the adrenaline of starting, and then, you know, it's you're in a you're in a very unusual um, place when you're pulling away because one minute you could be in tears, the next minute you could be cr- screaming atop your voice and from mm. pure elation and happiness, and you know that you've finally. Started something that you've put every sinew of yourself into for 18 months, you know. Yeah. So uh, when that, when you came crashing down from that with all the the physical problems, like I had this mm-hmm. serious cramps and my, you know, calluses on my hands ripped off and my heels blistered and then I had seasickness and then getting blown back those three times and on the second attempt when I was um, when I would rode back to the point on the GPS 42.2 mm-hmm. kilometers. To my next waypoint and i said right i'm going to put out the power anchor this time the power anchor is like a, an anchor that you use when the you know you're in the ocean and mm. you can't use the ground anchor because it's too deep mm-hmm. so i put out the power anchor and i went to bed in the um, you know contented assumption that when i get up i'll be in the exact same position and i'll just push on but what happened was when i got up i've been blown back a mile and a half so oh. psychologically again like i i'm thinking um that's a big blow because i'm thinking well if in these light headwinds that we had if i'm getting blown back on power anchor what's going to happen when i'm faced with storms in the middle of the atlantic i'm going to lose mm. like tens if not hundreds of miles every time yeah. uh, and you know as anyone knows in life when the mini is start going backwards and you're out of control it's really difficult so so i had all those um I had, I had that battle, you know, but mm-hmm. thankfully I, one of my strengths is I, I process the the negative things really quickly and I'm mm-hmm. able to get back into the kind of positives or the the, the controllable mm-hmm. parts. And so I, I just rode that morning out of pure anger and mm-hmm. uh, determination and kind of... Um, just been just been really pissed off and what happened, happened you know yeah. i rode for like 7 hours and and then later on that day i finally got some tailwinds and uh, and i got away from land you know but uh there was two boats in the exact same two solos in the exact same position for me and and then those lads never got away and their their race ended after yeah. 3 days you know wow. they had to get pulled back into the island so yeah. so i'm very kind of um i'm very uh what would you say I'm very happy to have that kind of had to have that kind of resilience yeah. and that determination and that uh motivation and drive to 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 kind of just roll for 7 hours even though it was going very mm. very kind of nowhere really <laughs> uh, and and uh, you know in hindsight it Probably saved
1: my race. Well, after that difficult start, I mean, you reached Antigua sixty-three days, six hours, and twenty-five minutes after leaving the Canary Islands, and you looked like a bit of a caveman uh, at the end of it. A lot leaner when you started, uh, having lost, if I'm not mistaken, twenty-eight kilograms during that time. But from a psychological point of view, when you stepped off of the boat, that initial adjustment—what was it like for you? Encountering people after two months of being on your own was it overwhelming
0: it it was unusual um Mm -hmm. it wasn't what i expected um it wasn't it wasn't that um powerful you know i i uh, i was surprised how quickly i adjusted and i suppose i was probably thinking about it for a long time and i was kind of ready to talk to people and kind of get back into a more Mm -hmm. normal existence you know because you know the you think about the finish a lot uh, while you're out there and you use it as motivation at times. So when it finally does come, it was... Well, firstly, it's a slow burner. It takes about bloody... By the time you see the island, it takes another kind of, I don't know, 24 hours to get into it. So, you know, you're you're constantly... you know thinking about the end and what you're going to do and, and yeah. that's not particularly healthy you know you should probably be more in the moment but uh, I yeah. just don't think you can help it you know mm-hmm. so yeah and then you're faced with and then you cross the finish line but then you when you do the official finish line but then you've still got another kind of 15-20 minute row into the dock where you're, where my parents and, and kind of um, celebrations are and the, yeah. the you know the the fireworks and all that so um, you're kind of going well when do I celebrate do I celebrate <laughs> you know when I cross the finish line or wait till I see everyone mm. so you end up doing a bit of both yeah. Uh, yeah and then um, physically I was in a bad enough state now at that stage like uh, my the sores had kicked up for the last three days and they were mm. really bad and uh, you know like you said I'd lost 28 kilos and um, mm. I was uh, yeah I, I was I was kind of just ready to to get off that boat mm. and then when the minute the boat was in um, leaping distance or or jumping distance of land I went first but I didn't know my legs weren't going to work (laughs) so my right leg I think hit the ground first and Mm -hmm. uh, it was like it was on a travelator like someone swept it from (laughs) under me I was like whoa Uh, and then it was I got hit in the face with some champagne as Mm -hmm. well so I was a little bit all over the shop I was like Bambi on ice and I nearly went back (laughs) into the uh, water at one stage because like I said I I had no idea that uh, I was going to be my legs were going to be in, in in that sort of way and uh and then you know it did it actually took a few days as well for you to get back walking straight um uh which was which was pretty uh yeah pretty unusual but uh (laughs) yeah um it was it was no it was absolutely fantastic to be able to share that moment and see what that moment meant to friends and family as well you know because uh can kind of get a little bit uh, insular while you're out there so Mm -hmm. you know just to see what it meant to to a lot of people and uh yeah even even the antigans you know because i had i i had this system where i could send little videos from the boat you know i I got got a a kind of great local following in antigua so Mm -hmm. um yeah they were really you know really really generous and and really lovely people you know treat Mm -hmm. you like a king when you come in so Mm -hmm. it was it was it was a nice way to get back into uh be treated so well to get them back into that reality and and, uh, and eating eating good food and and,
1: (laughs) uh, yeah incredible and some months have now passed since you completed the atlantic challenge you've got the memories to look back on but what's the next challenge another ocean expedition or something more on the land
0: i think it'll be more land bound uh, but i do have uh i do have the ambition to try an ocean again Mm um not as a solo or maybe more in it. Maybe a team put okay. together, a team, and, and put maybe a, you know maybe even just a pair or a four man team, and and try and cross maybe a different ocean or across the Atlantic a different way. I would love to do that, mm. um, but I think for the the moment, um, I think what I need to do is go back to the mountains. I, re- mm. I really have a I really have a pull. There are maybe they are pulling me back, you know, because it's been a few years mm. um, since I I tried. Um, Tried some stuff and um, some, you know, high altitude stuff, and I really love, I really appreciate and, and, and enjoy and love the challenge of it. It's, it's, I find it unbelievably challenging mentally mm-hmm. and physically, just because of, you know, the the the, the stage your your body goes through with the lack of oxygen, you know, and you have to be have to really be in a very strong mental place, and, and that's what these things are about. It's more the mental the mental battle through the physical duress, you know, Mm. that's what I love. And I, I, I think there's a huge amount in that, you know, Mm. and, uh, so I would, I would like to do that, but I would like to show people the kind of benefits of these challenges, you know, so mm. maybe prepare people and bring them along with me and, uh, you know, prepare them to, you know, do something extraordinary and, and do something very memorable in their lives. Yeah,
1: well, from a wonderful rugby career to now being a determined and a bit of an insane adventurer is a magnificent story. Testing yourself mentally and physically in the most extreme conditions possible is incredibly inspirational. And we we look forward to what lies ahead for you. All the best for that, Damien, and thank you for joining us on the Hard As Nails podcast.
0: My pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me.